Atamarie, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, that's Tuesday, the 7th of March. Coming up, how would National help cyclone damaged parts of the country like Coromandel? Japanese gangster turns himself in in a surprisingly mundane way. Devastated Auckland residents say they're being told that they still need to pay rates despite not being able to live in their homes. And Harry Styles fans queue for hours to buy merchandise ahead of the pop star show tonight. I've got three of the totes, the Harry is my friend hat, two of the Auckland t-shirts, two of the keychains, two crewnecks and then one of each of the posters. And that came to how much? I think it was 625. Good morning everybody, uh, welcome to First Up, it's Nathan Rarity here and we begin in the UK. The Matt Hancock text message saga continues. I'm joined from London by our correspondent Ellie J. Morena, Ellie, hey this um, this reality TV star who dabbled in politics apparently uh, was something to do with being a health secretary. It seems that uh, what he's been exposed through his text messages from his time as the health secretary. What was the latest there, what happened? Yes, that's exactly it. So these were called the lockdown files in the Telegraph. So that's the newspaper here. So it's 10,000 WhatsApp messages that Matt Hancock sent during his time as health secretary. And he he gave them all uh, willingly, I suppose, to Isabel Oakeshott, who's a journalist. She she doesn't work for the um, Telegraph, but she did take them to that newspaper and she has them because she was writing his pandemic diaries with him. Um, So those have also been given as well to an inquiry into the handling of the COVID pandemic and she said she's released all these messages because that that uh, that inquiry is going to take many, many years. And she's saying it's in the public interest that these texts come out now. So over the weekend, there have been more of them come out. So this has been a six-day scoop, pretty much. And every day, more and more have been in the newspaper. And then from that, in the news every day. So over the weekend, we've been hearing about uh, his resignation. If you remember um, those photos that came out of him kissing his aide, Gina Colin D'Angelo, and they both had partners at the time. They're now together, but the texts around that have come out. I mean, when they found out that there were these images of them in the in the office, and uh, it was kind of how the discussion that was happening about whether they broke the guidelines or broke the rules. They show he was talking about being able to stay in his job, whether he'd have to resign. And then also yesterday, a wave of messages talking about the need to, um, the phrase he used was scare the pants off the general public uh, with talking about a new strain of COVID as well to try and get people to comply with lockdown rules. And these, I mean, so much of it has not gone down very well at all to put it mildly i mean in the early days um some spokespeople for matt hancock did come out and say these have been taken out of context um but i think in the past few days they're kind of keeping quiet a little bit to to see what will happen so we're at the end i think of all the messages being released uh, and just kind of waiting and, and this big discussion about who said what what's happened uh, and what will happen next 
Yeah, you've got to be careful when you go for the automatic sticking up for your mate with the whole... It was taken out of context until you've actually read them yourself, uh, which obviously they hadn't and they were just auto-answering. Let's, let's um, stick with a government policy. So planning to ban migrants from re-entering the UK if they cross the English Channel in small boats. How, uh, how, does, how does that work and, and how has the plan been greeted? Well, so this is this is going to come out t- tomorrow here. So we don't know the full text of these new laws that could be coming into play. But essentially, it's it's quite a strict policy and new legislation as well. So as you said, these um, migrants who come across the channel could be removed from the UK. They'd then also be banned from coming in in future and also banned from applying for British citizenship. So with that, it's, it's talking kind of about the um, small boats crisis and people crossing the channel as well um, and saying that it, they would be then yeah taken away um, Rishi Sunak as well he he said before that um, stopping the boats was one of his five key pledges to voters so he was talking to the mail on Sunday yesterday and he said that this migration is not fair on British taxpayers uh, and not fair on those who come here legally as well they're talking as well saying it's not right that um, these criminal gangs should be allowed to uh, to traffic people across the channel too but this i mean this plan is extremely harsh and lots of charities and organizations who work with migrants and work with refugees are saying it's not going to work this is this is pointless it's sort of virtue signaling from the government and they're trying to shore up their uh, margins in in light of this election that's happening next year as well and their their popularity at the moment and so you using it as kind of a thing to say we we stick to what we'll say we'll do but we'll see the full text tomorrow um, but at the moment it's a controversial policy that could be being brought in now uh speaking of tomorrow what you have to get more blankets in don't you cold weather on the way Yes, and I feel like I've been saying this for months as well. It is already absolutely freezing here, but it could hit minus 10 in the next couple of days in parts of um, Scotland, in the north of Scotland as well, and feel even colder. Uh, And now they're saying they've issued these new updates, the Met Office, saying that it will be most of the UK that will feel this kind of icy coldness and even snow. So later on in the week, we could be seeing snow across the country too. And it has... I mean, you've got spring flowers coming up at the moment. I'm in London, I'm down in the south, and it is totally freezing. But we're coming into March, and this is usually when you see temperatures start to lift a little bit, but apparently not. We could be absolutely freezing in the next couple of days. Oh, well, stay warm and keep your coins at the ready to uh, pay for the heating. This year's Ellie J, who joins us every week from London. It's 11 past five. You're listening to First Up here in RNZ National with myself, Nathan Rarere, and the team. Now, um, coming up later on, we've got this really interesting story about um, about the young folks going to line up a day early for a concert because this is when you go and you buy the T-shirts and the hats and the things, you see, so you go early. And I was thinking about that, and I thought rather than tut-tutting about them, go, oh, they're going and spending money, what's the last thing you excitedly lined up for? There must have been a thing that you remember. Like, I remember the first thing I excitedly lined up for was going to Star Wars as a little boy in the West End Cinema in Hastings, and there was, like, lines around the block, but that was a billion years ago in a galaxy just here. Uh, But anyway, um, what did you last excitedly line up for? It might be a bit shocking when you go, gee, I haven't done that in ages. 2101 is uh, the uh, number to text us into. I just love to hear, that's all.
Well, uh, a month on from the Turkey-Syria earthquakes and more than one and a half million people are homeless. Some survivors have taken shelter in abandoned train carriages and many are now living on the streets of towns and cities outside the disaster zone. More than 50,000 people are known to have died in the quakes, which struck in the early hours of February the 6th. BBC's Anna Foster reports from southern Turkey. These trains haven't left the station for a month. Their homes instead now to earthquake survivors. Yulmaz and five of his family live in this carriage. They sleep on the seats, the few possessions they have around them. They wanted to provide tents to us, but I refused. AFAD, the Turkish Disaster Management Agency, says around two million people have left the quake zone altogether. One and a half million more are still here and struggling. There's anger too that so many buildings were allowed to have design features that struggle to withstand an earthquake. More than 160,000 either collapsed or were badly damaged. And it wasn't just the old ones. This is a well-to-do area, it's close to the park and there are lots of modern buildings. All of them should have stayed up, but look, this one is so new that you can still see the stickers in the glass on the top floor. Nobody had even moved in there yet, and yet it has still toppled to the ground. The scale of the task ahead is enormous. There isn't enough mechanical equipment in the country to clear the rubble quickly. So places like Iskenderun's collapsed hospital wing stay as they are. Personal medical notes litter the ruins. There are smashed pieces of equipment and medicines lying on the floor. It's a moment frozen in time. People across southern Turkey simply don't know how long they'll be living like this for. Some, like Muzayan, want to stay as close to home as they can. She's sleeping in a tent right outside her damaged house. My valuable articles are in there. Thieves are roaming around. The police are barely keeping them away. Lots of thieves. How can I live here? Sprawling, tented camps are the new towns. Big promises have been made for a program of permanent rebuilding. But it won't happen quickly. Anna Foster with that story. My button wouldn't come on there at the end. It is uh, quarter past five here at First Up on RNZ National. We cross to Japan now where Chris Gilbert brings us news uh, of South Korea's plan to resolve an 80-year dispute with its Japanese neighbours. Yeah, I mean, this is quite a big deal recently. So yesterday, South Korea announced it was going to compensate the families and the workers of those who were forced to labour without wages by Japan. Now, this goes back to... Japan's colonization of Korea, which lasted from about 1910 to 1945, but we're specifically looking at World War II. Um, the most well-known group of these laborers, what are known as comfort women, which were used to the benefit and gratification of Japanese soldiers. They came from Korea and they came from Okinawa as well. And this issue since 1945 has not been resolved. And the reason that it's kind of a big global issue is that it's, it's been the main wedge between South Korea and Japan in terms of the d- diplomacy this whole time. And it's a wedge they're 
desperately trying to pull out very, very quickly. It's kind of, you could look at it a little bit like treaty settlements. How do you resolve such a grand historical injustice that stems from colonization mm. in 2023? Well, one way is to make payments. And in 2018, a Korean court ordered two Japanese companies, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Nippon Steel, two companies who were kind of involved in this labor to make payments. They both refused because uh, Japan's approach under, you may remember the former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, a very radical right-wing prime minister, uh, Japan's attitude under him between 2010 until pretty much the last couple of years is that, look, we thought this is done and settled under a deal in 1965, which has been recognized to varying degrees, but the issue was never resolved. Abe was very damaging to Korean-Japanese relations in a way that he didn't recognize this issue. He didn't recognize an apology that Japan made to uh, South Korea in the 1990s. But the pair of leaders at the moment, Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea, Fumio Kishida of Japan, they really see eye to eye, if those eyes are pointing in the same direction, which is US, U.S. foreign policy. They are lockstep with U.S. plans to really amplify security, ramp up and modernize the state of military and the countries surrounding China in particular. So we're seeing a very rapid and thawing of relations between South Korea and Japan as they both look to get, get that wedge like out from between them and really pursue with a lot of speed, a lot of haste, defense pacts with the U.S. and other Western countries as well, such as the U.K., Australia, and of course, New Zealand. Now, here is a story that I don't even care if there's no story afterwards. It's just such a great headline. Yakuza member arrested after signing up for supermarket points card. That's great. <laughs> I mean, you've got to love them, don't you? I mean, the guy is 73 years old. He's, he's just trying to do his shopping. He just wants to get 300 yen off his tofu. Yeah. Where's the crime in that? Well, there's not really any. Well, there is a crime in that. We'll get to that later. But let's say that, first of all, that Japan is the home of the point card system. Every supermarket, convenience store, every shop has a loyalty card or some kind of shared point card of some type. You'll always get asked if you're using one or if you want to sign up. Takuya Machinaga was asked. He's a 73-year-old Nagoya resident. He's also a Yakuza boss. If the words Nagoya and Yakuza struck a chord with you, it's because last week, Nate, we chatted about a gang selling a side of cocaine at a fried octopus ball stand in Nagoya. And uh, those two words are coming up in the same sentence again. The the other problem for this gentleman is that when he was asked if he would like to sign up for the the point card, and he said, oh, yes, please, there is a rule, a clause in the paperwork which says uh, exclusion of antisocial organizations. Uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> Are you I'm pretty sure. Yakuza? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. damn. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. <Yeah. laughs> you, you, you really can't tick no right down the line on every box. You, you know, like this guy was reading the paperwork, and he was a very honest Yakuza member. Um, <laughs> but it is a very common clause in Japan. Yakuza members, even former ones, can't upgrade mobile phone plans. They can't open bank accounts. Really, in, in some ways, to like really point at an issue here, what this does is prevent reformed gang members from integrating into society again. They can't participate in social media campaigns. They can't get jobs. They can't get point cards for a 300 yen discount on tofu. And as usually the deal with the police, if they get you on one thing, they get you on everything. And so this guy... 73 years of crime snagged by some paperwork at the supermarket. That was Chris Gilbert from Japan. (laughs) 
20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, yep, fans flock to Mount Smart Stadium 24 hours early for some shirts and hats. Uh, let us know what was the last thing you excitedly lined up for on 2101 to uh, the text line. And also Nationals Nicola Willis on the death of Georgina Byer and the state of our roads. To South Auckland now, where the amount of time that people are waiting to get medical treatments just keeps going up and up, Stephen Forbes from the Local Democracy Reporting Programme has been right across that issue. I asked him about the fracas that's taken place between the National Party's health spokesperson, Dr Shane Reti, and Rob Campbell, who was last week sacked from his role as Te Whatu Ora chief. Shane Reddy said talk of Te Whatu Ora laying off hundreds of backroom staff won't reduce the wait times at Middlemore Hospital. Reddy's comments followed claims by Tafatawara, or former Tafatawara chairman Rob Campbell, that had plans to lay off large numbers of administrative and managerial staff. Campbell was removed from his position last week by Health Minister Asia Verrill after he posted comments on social media criticising National's three waters policy. Campbell said there'd been widespread duplication of roles since the health reforms came into effect last year and redundancies were inevitable. Uh, and Campbell said money saved from the redundancies could go into more frontline health services. But uh, Shane Retty said he was concerned the focus appeared to be more on the restructuring and not on frontline health services. So he said it wasn't going to improve ED wait times for people at Middlemore Hospital or reduce a surgical waiting list in counties Manukau. And Shane Retty questioned why the issue hadn't been dealt with earlier. So, but in that though, was Rob Campbell saying though that that those redundancies would reduce wait times because you'd be able to have more people that are involved in actual dealing with patients? Or what he, he well, well he made he, he made out that the redundancy, the money saved from the redundancies would then be able to go into frontline healthcare services. Oh, okay, okay. But there were no no concrete details on it. But he said, look, I, I spoke to him again this morning actually, and he said the total number of redundancies nationwide is about fifteen hundred people. Now, you you, uh, you yourself, you've been looking at the waiting times for specialist appointments, so what did you find? Yeah. Uh, yeah, waiting lists for a first specialist appointment have jumped by 46% in counties Manukau in the last 12 months. Those figures were to the end of December, and they showed that in counties Manukau there was over 6,500 people waiting four months or more for a first specialist appointment. So that's up 46% on the same time in 2021. Patients usually expect to see a, a specialist within four months of being referred by their doctor, and it's often the first step towards them getting much-needed treatment or surgery. Uh, meanwhile, there was another 1,569 people waiting for non-acute elective surgery mm. at the end of December, and that was up 69% from December 2021. So I spoke to the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists Executive Director, uh, Sarah Dalton, and she said our hospitals just don't have the staff or capacity to cope with patient numbers. Uh, she said, but the, those numbers, the increase in those numbers was was large. But Te Whatawara's National Director of Hospital and Specialist Services, Fiona Dugan, acknowledged the stress current wait times could have on people who are waiting treatment. She said during the lockdowns in 2020, 2021, there'd been a significant number of clinical appointments cancelled throughout the country. And she said this had hampered its ability to deliver non-acute elective surgery. But Dugan said the government had allocated $282.5 million in funding in 2020 over three years to increase plan care delivery and reduce waiting lists and a further 89 million last year to reduce the number of people who have been waiting more than a year for surgery.
Right. You also spoke to someone who's been waiting a lot longer than a year for surgery, though. Tell me about this person. Who's yeah, been waiting, I did speak to one lady. Knee. She'd been waiting since 2019 for, for a knee replacement. Yeah. yeah. So she'd been taking painkillers, and she'd obviously had a first specialist appointment, but she's still waiting for the surgery. So, yeah. That's LDR's Steve Forbes. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. A lot of history crammed into the 7th of March every year, goodness me. Here's some birthdays. Happy birthday, Brian Cranston, 67 years old today. And the master blaster, Viv Richards, is 71. Happy birthday to you. Having a birthday now... uh, Born in 1765, Joseph Niep... I've got, hang on, have I got the official hang on, official deep voice pronunciation man off the internet? How do I say it? Joseph Nicephore Nieps. Joseph Nicephore Nieps. Okay. It'd be fine in English to say it as Joseph Nicephore Nieps. Joseph Nicephore Nieps. Okay, so Joseph Nicephore Nieps, uh, the French inventor who created the first true photographs, was born in, uh, on this day in 1765. Came up with not just the first photographs, but also the first internal combustion engine. That's what I thought. Wow, just didn't stick to one corner of the room in de- inventing, did he? Uh, Sir Edwin Henry Landseer was born in 1802. He did some inventing. He invented the image of St Bernard dogs carrying brandy casks around their necks. The monks of the St Bernard Hospice denied that any St Bernard ever carried casks and they said, no, it's because some dude called Edward Lancer made a painting in 1820 called the Alpine Mastiffs reanimating a distressed traveller. I don't know, people always come around and ask where the barrels are. On this day in 1845, Daniel David D.D. Palmer uh, invented the field of chiropractic care after a ghost told him to. Uh, on this day in 1987, Lethal Weapon came out. On this day in 1998, The Big Lebowski came out. I know. 25 years old. And on this day in 1912, the Oreo cookie was released. Why do we care? It's the best-selling biscuit in world history. Uh, it's um, been sold in over 100 countries since Nabisco started manufacturing them in 1912. And on this day in 1988, Cyclone Bowler hit New Zealand and uh, the small islands of uh, Fiji with torrential rains causing significant flooding and landslides. Yeah, that was on this day in 1988. And that is your day of history that we call the 7th of March. Hey there, uh, Anand, how are you? Yeah, I'm well, I, how are you? I'm good, I just want to know, uh, what would, did you line up excitedly for any, what's the last thing you've lined up excitedly for? Do you know what, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I lined up for the last Harry Potter book uh, when it came out in 2007, uh, nice. The Deathly Hallows. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, uh, I wasn't even a big fan of the books, um, that's the funny thing about it, it's just... Um, I got dragged along by a relative who was a massive fan, um, and I just went along to keep her company. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and you know what? It was like two hours at the warehouse, uh, and it felt like forever. But look, the things I do for love, eh? <laughs> and you do that but Do you do the bit where you're like, can you go off to the garden section and get a couple of those fold-out chairs and bring them back? <laughs> Did you do that one? No, I didn't do that one. Um, this was standing in line. Uh, it was oh, a cold, I remember it was winter, um, 
and you know how Christchurch winters can get. Oh, well, uh, good on just, you. Uh, like it's just a nice, nice bit of family love from my part. I think. Well, that's, there you go. I'm clapping for that. That's fantastic. Tell me this: um, working from home remains popular. Yeah, I mean, uh, it became the norm, didn't it, during lockdowns? But of course, now life has gone largely back to normal. I say largely. There's still some weird things happening, uh, <laughs> and of course, COVID is still around. Um, but look, working from home remains big, uh, with uh, more people wanting to work remotely than uh, before uh, pre-COVID. So we have some research from Internet NZ. They are the designated manager for the .NZ country domain. And they found that uh, six in ten people, uh, you know, they work in roles that allow them to work from home. And uh, more than three quarters uh, work remotely, occasionally or all the time. So quite a lot of people have some form of uh you know, working from home in their life. So it's quite a big percentage when you think about how we all, uh, you know, drove or took the bus to work. It's just uh, a big change in mentality. It's uh, slightly less than last year, uh, which I think is expected as uh, more and more people headed back to the office on a more regular basis, but still it's remained quite strong. Mm. Um, uh, More than half of people uh, who could work from home uh, they want to do so more frequently as well. Uh, so there's real appetite for it. And you just wonder as well, I guess, you know, how much the high cost, cost of fuel or things like that have to um, has to do with that. Totally. Um, fuel, you know, parking, the toilets are better at home. Um, wow, exactly, the, right. Know, the, the work pantry's pretty good, although you've got to pay for the tea and coffee. That's a bit of a downer. But I think apart from that, it's, um, it's, it's actually... It's actually pretty good. It's on to a winner. Thank you very much, sir. He lined up for Harry Potter for a family love, and also he's dedicated to bringing you all the best business during the day. Anandzaki there, who's on uh, with the uh, the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Here's what your New Zealand dollar buys you currently. 61.88 US cents, 91.9 Australian cents, 58.02 Euro cents, 51.47 British pence, 4.2 yuan, and 84.09 Japanese yen. Well, thousands of Harry Styles fans flocked to Auckland's Mount Smart Stadium yesterday, but it wasn't to see the English pop star perform. Oh, no, 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 no. Fans from around the country gathered 29 hours before the gates officially opened tonight to snap up $50 Harry hats, $120 Harry hoodies, $35 Harry tote bags, along with keychains and Harry posters from the Harry merchandise tent. Leonard Powell went to find out what all the Harry fuss was about. Come on, Harry, we want to say goodnight to you. Queues of Harry Styles fans stretched around the block from midday yesterday, lining up to buy his sought-after merchandise, which is expected to sell out, just like his only New Zealand show tonight. Many fans came straight from the airport, waiting with carry-on baggage by their sides. Where have you come from today? Christchurch. We've brought our two daughters up from Hawke's Bay. We came from Christchurch. Um, yeah, we've flown up from Wanaka at lunchtime. Wellington. Yeah, we came up this morning. Napier. You've come from Napier. Poor old Napier. Yeah, Cyclone Gabriel we got. Yeah, pretty blasted out there. These two diocesan school students popped out of class, still in their uniforms, to buy merchandise. Well, I have a free period right now, so I'm missing my study period. 
And how about yourself? I had media, so we were watching a movie, so I was just going to watch it at home tonight. I think it's fine. <laughs> I feel like because we're doing all the work that we were going to do at school anyway, so we're catching up, so it's not too bad. You've taken requests from people? Yeah. We asked around if anyone needed anything. Are you taking any commission from that? Yeah. You are? No. Oh, no commission. No. no, no, no. <laughs> These two girls were outside Mount Smart with their mothers, making a 10-hour drive up from Hawke's Bay. Um, we've been waiting since 2020 and we're missing school till Thursday, which is quite good. <laughs> People say we're wagging, but I don't think we're wagging for this, but yeah. How about yourself? Ooh, yeah, we're definitely wagging, but she had swimming spots today, so that's a good miss for her to come to Harry. This fan from Wanaka had made the most of her shopping spree. I bought like 300 something worth Mitch for me and then another 300 for a friend so I spent a lot of money just then but yeah like half of it's for my friend and then half of it's for me. And what have we got in the bag actually let's talk through real quick. I've got three of the totes, I have the Harry's my friend hat, I have two of the Auckland t-shirts, two of the keychains and then two of the crew necks and then one of each of the posters. And that came to how much total? I think it was 625, $635. 70-year-old Wayne Keane flew in with his 18-year-old daughter from Christchurch. She stands in line while he is hunting for something to drink, but it's proving difficult in an industrial area. You're thirsty? Very thirsty. We got off the plane two hours ago, did a lovely ticky tour on the bus system, and got here and we thought, oh, yeah, I said to my daughter, you queue up, I'll go and find some water. I can't find any there's no shops open, nothing. Outside the gate, I meet a group of four new friends sitting on the grass with their hall. Are all four of you, have you all come up together? No, we no. met them in the line. You met these, so you've made friends in the line? Yes, yeah, we have. <laughs> it was about an hour, wasn't it? Standing yeah. in line about an hour? Yeah. It wasn't too bad when you're talking. What were you talking about? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> not safe for the radio? No, not safe for the oh. radio at all. Marilyn is up from Wellington with her 17-year-old granddaughter, Sadie. The 68-year-old likes to get down with youngsters. I'm the old girl. Yeah. Is this a, is this a normal uh, grandmother, granddaughter outing for you? Oh, we went to Pink down in Dunedin together, yeah, when she was here last time. I'm still young and up here. It's the body that goes. <laughs> a sellout crowd of 40,000 is expected tonight, with gates opening at 5. Leonard Powell amongst the excitement. It's 23 to 6 here. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So to come between now and the end of the programme, we hear from devastated Auckland residents who say they're being told they still need to pay rates despite not being able to live in their homes. And National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis is on the show to discuss managed retreat in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle and the passing of her parliamentary colleague Georgina Bayer. Well, more than five weeks on from the devastating anniversary weekend floods, a displaced West Auckland family says that they are still unable to access the city's mayoral relief fund and money for rental accommodation is fast running out. The Azad family fled their Swanson home in the floodwaters with just the clothes on their backs. And Isma Azad told our producer Mava Shikram that the family is still paying rates, insurance and mortgage for a yellow stick at home that they can't and don't want to live in. 
Isma Azad no longer shuts the front gate when leaving her property. She says there's nothing valuable inside. You can see, like, there's holes in the house now. Wow. Excuse the smell. <laughs> okay, what's, what's the smell? Uh, that's just from the water. That was uh, sewage water that was in my property and the fact that it's been damp and shut. The carpets were taken out a couple of days after we flooded by insurance. And then they've come and they've cut the jib um, and taken out the kitchen flooring. What's this? This is your... This is my bathroom. <laughs> so the floor actually, when the carpet guy came, his foot went through it. No doors. They all had to come off. No, no, no light switches, uh, like PowerPoints. They all had to come out. Isma and her family were forced out of their home after floodwaters gushed through their property on the 27th of January. Her 10-year-old daughter was almost swept away as they tried to escape. Two days later, her house was yellow-stickered. And then, a nasty surprise. So on the 27th, we got flooded, and on the 7th of February, I got my rates in my inbox. They know full well my house has been yellow-stickered because they did it. And so I rang and asked them about a rate relief or, you know, an extension. No. So you can set up a payment plan. If you are late, there's interest, there's penalties. The payment plan may incur interest as well. I had to ring them back again about other things they hadn't attended to and asked again in the same answer. It's like, no, there's nothing we can do. Have you applied to the mayoral relief fund? Yes, I have. I haven't heard anything back. Auckland Council Head of Rates Valuations and Data Management, Ron Winheath, says notices are sent through an automated system. The council postponed sending some letters after the floods, but legally the rate pair must be notified at least 14 days prior to the due date. She says at this stage homeowners with stickered properties do not qualify for rates remission, but they can get support through grants. In the meanwhile, her insurance provider, IAG, has told her the scope of work required. The carpets were taken out a couple of days after we flooded by insurance. And then they've come and they've cut the jib um, and taken out the kitchen flooring. And they've sent someone to sanitise my frames, but they haven't actually cleaned them. Like There's mud and sewage still on my framing. And is this floor, is it still a bit damp? It's a bit damp, and if you go in between the joists, you'll probably bounce because it's swollen and they haven't removed the floors yet. Oh, it is, I can, yeah, yeah it is quite can, swollen. Yeah, and they haven't removed it yet. They say, they have said in the scope of work that someone will come again and assess it. So how many assessors do you need to come out? How many builders do you need to come out? So the foundations of the house, no one's looked at them, aside from poking their head under um, the opening under the house. I have asked for them to send an engineer out to assess the foundation. So I know that this house is safe to come back to for me and my kids, and they believe that an engineer is not required. So are you worried there's foundational damage? I am. I am. But no one wants to give me the reassurance that there isn't, unless I do it out of my own pocket. For now, the family is living in a rental property. IAG covers temporary accommodation for up to $25,000 a year. And rent isn't her only expense. I said, I'm moving. I have no beds, no drawers, you know, nothing. I have clothing and I have kitchen utensils. Um, what can I be given? Initially, when I first rang up for some help, they gave me 2000 and took my excess out. So 550 excess came out, so I got 1450 And that was an emergency stress payment. IG has confirmed a claims representative has contacted ISMA since RNZ reached out to them. A statement from the company said due to the sheer volume of claims, they've had to prioritise some over the others to help the most vulnerable. 
But for Isma, there is no end in sight and the bills are piling up. So at the moment, what are you paying? Rates, my mortgage, all my insurances, the basics. You know, I've got two kids that go to school, food, clothing, we've got a kitchen. Rent, which, you know, IAG have contributed towards, but they've only given me two months. Does this look like it'll be done in two months? I don't think so. I'm paying for a house I can't live in. And all this is taking its toll. I'm done. Like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. You know, my daughter almost got swept away with the force of the water. And then I have insurance asking me for receipts. And I'm having to explain to them that things are in the bag that got swept away from my daughter. Don't ask me, because all you're doing is re-traumatising me while I think about what could have happened had my husband not acted as quick as he did and we didn't have people in the street helping us. Esma says the land her house is built on was never fit for purpose. What now? You, I know that you are asking uh, the government for managed retreat. Yeah. What would that look like for you? For me, it would be that they would buy this property and they would never build on it again. Because, you know, I have had friends and family go, just sell your property, you know, rebuild it and sell it. Morally and ethically, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. You know, what my family has gone through. So buy this. You know, it's a beautiful area. Maintain it. Let nature take its course. But don't put other people in danger. And she believes council should pay a fair price. If the council wants to charge me rates based on my current rateable value, then that's what I would expect. IAG has confirmed that they have settled two car claims for the Azad family and paid eight weeks of their rent. Their home and contents claims are still open. The company says it is working through information provided by customers to calculate settlement and do not need receipts as proof of purchase. 1326, former Carterton Mayor and MP for Wairarapa, Georgina Bayer, died yesterday after a long illness. Bayer was the world's first openly transgender mayor and MP. Her passing has seen an outpouring of heartfelt tributes from politicians on all sides of the House and, of course, from the Rainbow community, who she served with such passion. Among those saddened by her death was the deputy leader of the National Party, Nicola Willis, who got to know Ms Bayer quite well during their time together in Parliament. I was so sad to hear of her passing. She was a brave and gracious trailblazer. I was really fortunate to meet her and to spend quite some time with her at Pride events, particularly in Wellington. The thing I'll always remember about her was how generous she was in including me, even though I was a voice from the other side of the political aisle from her. And in fact, she would go to great efforts to make sure my voice was heard at those Pride events because it was her view that the rainbow community would be better supported if it had support from both sides of Parliament. And I really um, felt so grateful to her for that. And she was someone who could breach the divide. And so I will miss her and I know many New Zealanders will. Yeah, yeah, great loss. Well, let's move to uh, something different now. See, the, the Coromandel boy, the, the, their major route, they're roshed out, and I'm talking about State Highway 25 there just south of Hikawai. It's it's down to one pretty precarious-looking lane, and I, I believe Mayor Len Salt is speaking to Iwi about utilising muscle barges to get people across. Is it a good idea in the interim? But and But secondly, what should we be doing to get that road working again? Look, I think in the interim, I understand locals wanting to do 
whatever they humanly can do and do safely to make sure they've got better ways of getting around. Because uh, being cut off as a business, being cut off from friends and family, from medical services, from being able to to get to people's place of education, uh, look, that's a real nightmare. And I think what this underscores is that in the medium term, New Zealand has a real challenge to rebuild some of these regional connections in a way that they are more resilient for the future. And for some places, that will mean building the road in a slightly different place so that it can uh, be more weather resilient in the future. And that's why National thinks it's so important that the Land Transport Fund be focused on road building and not, for example, on the cycleways, which Michael Wood had proposed in his earlier uh, transport strategy. John Key cycleways, you love them. Will National commit to rebuilding all of the state highways? Look, I think that's what has to be done. They are essential, not only for people to get to their homes, uh, but for business, for freight. Connections are what keep our economy pumping. And I want this to be an economy that's getting bigger and stronger, not going backwards. And that's what it would do if we stop some of these communities being connected. So how does that square, though, with national pledging to slash government spending? Well, we've always been clear that it's about getting better value for the dollars that we are spending and that if we stop doing some of the more wasteful things, then we can actually deliver the projects that should be a priority. So, for example, we would not be progressing the proposal for Auckland Light Rail. Now, the bill for that comes in at $30 billion or $14 billion, depending on whose analysis you want to believe. Mm. But that's an awful lot of money for a project that analysis shows won't even be carbon neutral for several years after it's developed and a project that won't actually help a lot of Aucklanders get around their city. So we'd prefer to see that money going to regional roads. Okay. What, I just want to move to something slightly different there. There's people who just can't live in their homes after you know the, the weather events that have happened in the last couple of months. Some of them have even been white-stickered, but their houses are still unlivable. Should people there who can't live in their homes at the moment still be made to pay rent? Well, look, I understand that those are issues that they can take to their landlord, that there are clear guidelines being set out by MB on that, and that where they're having issues with their landlord, that tenancy services can both provide guidance, ultimately the tenancy tribunal can be used to uh, work out disputes. Okay. What's your view on managed retreat, of what it would look like and, and what the government's role should be in it? Well, these are really complicated issues. I think the closest analogy we have to this in New Zealand is both what happened in Matata, but also what has what happened in, after the Canterbury earthquakes. Uh, and what we saw there was that in some areas, the government said, look, it's just not safe to rebuild here because of the liquefied soils. And therefore, they worked with insurance companies and the council to provide compensation packages for those people who were no longer able to live on their land. Hmm. Now, the situation with the flooding isn't quite the same, so there are a lot of issues to work through. And I think what we have to do is approach these issues on a case-by-case basis, but with a mind to being really fair for the future, because any decisions that are made following Cyclone Gabriel will set a clear precedent for the future for other regions and other areas. So it's something to be worked through carefully. Mm. And it is something that National has said, look, we're prepared to talk to the government on this because we recognise that if there can be bipartisan consensus, 
that would be preferable. Now, I know you want to save $400 million by reducing the amount of the government spends on consultants when you were talking before about money better spent. But I wonder why they're there. Like, won't you find that if you get into government, you might find that they're necessary? Well, if we do find they're necessary, we'll still have a very large budget for them. What we're proposing to do is to reduce the spending from the current $1.7 billion, which is a huge amount of money, Nathan, back to where it was when Labor first got to office, which was more like $1.2 billion. So we're proposing to cut it back to $1.3 billion, so it's actually just a bit more generous. And we think that should be more than enough. And we'll achieve that reduction by not having consultants spending endless hours on go-nowhere projects like the cycleway over the Auckland Harbour or the TVNZ, RNZ merger or the social insurance scheme that has been thrown out. And we'll do that by stopping the revolving door that has started to emerge in Wellington where public servants are public servants one day and then the next week they're a contractor charging out at twice the rate. We've got to put a stop to that. It's not good for anyone. But haven't those examples been cut now? I know the merger's not going ahead. Well, our view is that the government shouldn't be throwing millions at consultants on projects that aren't even going to go ahead. And so, yes, we're going to be a lot more disciplined about not starting stuff that isn't a core priority. And, you know, our policy announcement at the weekend was a statement of our values, which is the government should be spending less on its own advice and its own consultants and its own ideas and its own projects, and it should be leaving more money in the back pockets of New Zealanders. Just finally, with the ECE uh, proposals that you've got there, that with your uh, your family boost, just wondering, yeah, so that that covers ECEs and that covers does that cover community put on ones as well? So like, can you know local kindies? Absolutely. So right, it covers yeah. all licensed early childhood education providers. So that's kindergartens, community creches, kohangareo, Pacifica language nests, anyone who's got a license from the Ministry of Education. The parents whose children attend there will be eligible for the rebate of up to $75 a week, up to $3,900 a year. That's Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Yeah, we spoke there about uh, the death of Georgina Bayer, and that news came yesterday. The world's first openly transgender mayor and MP, uh, and, and such a, a fierce defender of beliefs as well. Uh, here is some audio of her in action. Uh, in 2004, this was the civil union protests outside Parliament, and uh, yeah, here she is confronting some uh, Destiny Church members. Christian charity from other people than what I've seen from you today. Well, I'm going to come and look at each and every one of you. I don't mind at all. Your hatred is totally intolerable. Why do you deny law-abiding New Zealand citizens who happen to have a difference the same rights as yourselves? How dare you use the cloak of Christianity when you are imparting to your children prejudice, discrimination toward people like me 
gays and lesbians and other people who live differently, but abide the law and pay their taxes. Why do you do this to us? You're not going to win, you haven't. I have trust in New Zealanders that they will be fair-minded as they always have been because a democracy that I live in made it possible for somebody like me to be here in this place serving the privilege of service to people in New Zealand and you would deny me rights. Why do you do that? Have you got another method other than Jesus loves you? What else does Jesus tell you? Can anybody else other than Brian Tamaki speak? Do you have your own voices? No, you don't. You don't want me to marry. You don't want me to have children. You want to control other people's lives so they're like yours. Georgina Byer was 65. Look, we've received a lot of feedback this morning, particularly coming in uh, during Nicola Willis's interview there as well. A lot of people not happy with the answers at all. I was asking this morning, what was the last thing you lined up for excitedly? Because a lot of people did that for Harry Styles, just to line up 24 hours early to buy merchandise. Here's one. Uh, lined up back in 1970 for the movie Bambi at the Odeon in Rotorua. Uh, another one here. We lined up for hours for KFC at Royal Oak in the early 70s. I lined up for the COVID vaccine, says Ed. Can recommend. What would the leader of the opposition say about kids skipping school for Harry Styles? Where are the truancy officers? Uh, another one. I lined up in Bristol, Bristol in the UK to for six hours to get a book signed by Terry Pratchett. Another one. Uh, queued for a, a, to purchase a PlayStation 2. Don't ask me what year it was. I feel that one, though. Here was one. Someone lined up. Ross, Wellington, lined up to, oh, get a look through a Hercules uh, when those military display transport planes were on. Cool. Uh, look, have yourselves a magnificent day. Download the First Up podcast. All the popular kids are doing it. Morning Reporters next with Guy and Corin. We'll be back in your ears. Up, uh, Paul.